Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is September 16th, 2022, and I'm your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I wonder, why, 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 she ran away from the hints exam. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Peter Johns. He has been practicing emergency medicine since 1985, and he has been passionate about vertigo education for the last two decades. He co-authored the vertigo chapter in the current edition of Tintinelli's Emergency Medicine Textbook and has a YouTube channel about vertigo with over 16,000 subscribers and 5 million views. Welcome to the SGM, Peter. Thanks so much, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's an interesting song choice that you had. Um, do you want to explain why you picked the Traveling Wilbury song? Well, I think just hearing you sing the chorus was worth it, actually. But <laughs> uh, really, I picked it because, you know, it's a classic Dell Shannon song and has has one of the greatest choruses in, in early rock and roll. And I recently just ran across it on Spotify. And yeah, I thought it could be a metaphor for a hints exam because after a brief honeymoon-like period with the hints exam, many emergency physicians have been running away from it for for various reasons. And like most breakups, it's complicated. It's complicated. Well, before we get started, just do you have any financial conflicts of interest to declare? Nope, not in the pocket of big vertigo. (laughs) Okay. Well, give us a case to start the show. Okay, this is a real case seen by me. And you can see her actual exam findings in a video on my YouTube channel. The listeners should be able to find the link in in your notes. And it's a 70-year-old woman who woke up with dizziness and presented to the emergency department later that day. She'd vomited twice and describes her dizziness as a constant spinning sensation, which gets worse when she moves her head. She has some unsteadiness, but can walk unaided. There's no other neurologic symptoms. In particular, she denies any new significant headache or neck pain, any focal weakness or paresthesias, dysarthria, diplopia, dysmetria, dysphagia or dysphonia, the so-called dangerous Ds. And when the examiner, and she's looking straight ahead, you observe that she has horizontal and a slight torsional nystagmus beating towards her left ear. That means that the fast component of the nystagmus is horizontal to the left, and there's a slight rotation of the upper poles of the eyes beating towards the left as well. Well, we have looked at acute vestibular syndrome, or AVS, on the SGEM with Dr. Mary McLean, who was the guest skeptic on SGEM 310. The bottom line from that episode was that the available evidence does not support the use of the HINTS examination alone by physicians in patients with isolated vertigo or acute vestibular syndrome to rule out a posterior stroke. Yeah, and in that episode, the case patient was told that they would be admitted to the hospital to have a neurologist do the HINTS exam and decide if an MRI was necessary. Yeah, so the question remains, can emergency physicians... People like me, can I be taught how to use the HINTS exam to make these important clinical decisions? I would argue yes, but we have some uphill climb to do to reach that goal. And that's partly because vertigo education for emergency physicians has historically contained much misinformation. And there's, there's one thing we've learned from the current pandemic, it's that misinformation is easier to spread than to correct. Yeah, the tsunami of misinformation around COVID has been coined the infodemic. And Simon Carley and I talked about how 
the principles of evidence-based medicine are even more important now than in any time in our career. And there's a great quote by Thomas Franklin in 1787 about misinformation that rings true over 200 years later in this age of social media. He said, quote, falsehoods will fly as if it were on the wings of the wind and carry its tail to every corner of the earth whilst truth lags behind. Her steps, though sure, are slow and solemn. That's a, a great quote. Uh, I'm going to add another one from another famous Franklin, which is Ben Franklin. And uh, what he said was, I think, apropos of the Hintz exam. He said, you will observe with concern how long a useful truth may be known and exist before it's generally received and practiced upon. Yeah, we call that the knowledge translation gap and the window of time it takes for high quality, clinically relevant information to reach the patient's bedside has been estimated to be over 10 years. And so how long it will take a useful truth to end up at the patient's bedside, I'm not surprised that it'll take a long time. But we're here to correct that today, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I'll, I'll mention some myths and misinformation that people might hold about dizziness just to get them out of the way. For instance, people think that asking what they mean by dizzy is the most important question to ask a dizzy patient. But in fact, the patient's description of the sensation of their dizziness can't be used to generate a, a reliable differential diagnosis, just like with chest pain. Somebody says it's burning and they're sweaty and nauseated and not looking well. You don't just give them a PPI and send them home. Uh, and so if somebody says, I'm, I feel like I'm going to pass out, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have vertigo or even a stroke. Another myth is that the, there, you know, you'll often see tables of the central versus peripheral characteristics of vertigo. And I've made several videos about this. So let's just say they're not useful. Uh, you can watch my video for more information about this, but when you try and categorize, this is what central is like, this is what peripheral is like, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, you actually pointed that out to me in one of my videos that I made for another organization, and you reached out to me, and that's the beauty of social media and Twitter. Yes, it it can provide a lot of misinformation, but it, it resulted in us connecting and you helping correct and me understanding this area even better. Well, I'm glad, Ken, that you uh, found that feedback useful. I know I can be a little blunt in my comments sometimes. Sorry about that. Another myth is that if the dizziness or a vertigo gets worse when you move your head, that means it's a, a peripheral cause. But all vertigo gets worse when you move your head. So if it doesn't get worse when you move your head, it's probably not actually vertigo. A lot of people think that a CT or CT angiogram will prevent you from sending home a stroke presenting with dizziness. But unfortunately, the CT scan has very poor sensitivity for stroke. Another one is that people think if they have a hearing loss, it must be a peripheral cause. In fact, an ICA stroke, an anterior inferior cerebellar artery stroke, can cause hearing loss and dizziness. And another myth which drives me crazy is that if people think if you see vertical nystagmus, it must be a central cause. In fact, the most common thing that will cause nystagmus to be seen in the emergency department is BPBV, and vertical upward nystagmus is an expected finding. Spontaneous vertical nystagmus, nystagmus you see when the patient is just sitting or lying there, now that is central. Well, I'm glad you got some of those myths out of the way because there are lots of dogma and myths in medicine, and we've discussed some of them on the SGEM. 
And the most recent time was an SGEM Extra called Dogma Lysis 2021. Regarding dizziness, though, no wonder emergency physicians struggle with dizzy patients when what we are taught for decades is often not very helpful. Exactly. And then add to that is the fact that cerebellar strokes, which is the scariest cause of vertigo that we see, can appear very similar to vestibular neuritis. And you start to understand why so so many emergency physicians don't like seeing dizzy patients. Poor understanding of vertigo leads to fear and avoidance of seeing these kinds of patients, which leads to continued poor knowledge, more avoidance, and so on. I call this the vertigo vicious cycle of vexation. And I think most emergency physicians are spinning around in it right now. (laughs) Well, the problem is illustrated by the case is that most of the patients with acute vestibular syndrome, that is constant vertigo, which is worse with head movement, nausea and vomiting, difficult walking, and nystagmus have vestibular neuritis. But some, some will have a posterior circulation stroke. That's very true. Uh, There are some rare causes of acute vestibular syndrome, but functionally, the differential diagnosis is uh, stroke versus vestibular neuritis. Thankfully, many, but not all, patients with posterior circulation stroke will have other features, what I call the central features, that would make you say to yourself, hey, this doesn't look like good old vestibular neuritis. Yeah, it would be unusual for a patient with vestibular neuritis to have a new significant headache or neck pain, which are red flags for a cerebellar hemorrhage or a vertebral artery dissection, or for them to have focal weakness or paresthesia, diplopia, dysarthria, dysmetria, dysphagia, dysphonia, or spontaneous vertical nystagmus, or the inability to walk unaided. Yep. Any of those features in a patient with vertigo and nystagmus at rest should make you very concerned that your patient is having a stroke. So in fact, the first line of defense against missing a posterior circulation stroke is screening for central features and not the HINTS exam. If you find any of those central features, work them up for stroke. So Peter, what do we do with the majority of patients who have acute vestibular syndrome, but none of those central features? Like in the case scenario you presented, do we just throw our arms up and say, yep, no neuro findings, must be VN, send them home? Or do we have to get an MRI in all of them? Well, since most patients with acute vestibular syndrome, again, with nystagmus, have vestibular neuritis, the the cost and availability of, of an MRI for this indication becomes a real practical concern. Plus, to make it even more concerning an early MRI that is done in the first 24 hours can miss approximately 20% of strokes. All right. So what do we do then? Do we admit them all for two or three days and then get an MRI? Because we don't want to miss them by getting an early MRI and missing some of them. I mean, maybe that would be ideal in a well-funded, well-resourced system to do that, but it's certainly not the practice in many places in the world. And it is not where I work in a rural and community settings. Is this what you do in the big smoke in Ottawa, the capital of Canada? Do you have access to MRIs? Do you admit them all? Uh, No, I I certainly don't. Um, Now, imagine if we had a test with excellent negative predictive value to help rule out a stroke in these low-risk acute vestibular syndrome patients with no central features. Well, guess what? 
The ANTS exam has been shown in expert hands to have a negative likelihood ratio of 0.01. That's pretty darn low. That is pretty darn low, Peter. But the key phrase in that paragraph is expert hands. And David Newman Toker, he's an MD and a PhD. And he's also a professor of neurology, ophthalmology, and otolaryngology. This leads me back to that question is, can the HINTS exam be correctly applied and interpreted in the hands of emergency physicians? And there's that systematic review and meta-analysis by Ole et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine 2020, suggesting they cannot. In the one study that was included in that meta-analysis, one study included a specially trained emergency physician. And the diagnostic accuracy of the HINTS exam was what I would call not impressive. The sensitivity was 83%. That's true positives. And the specificity was 44%, true negatives. Yeah, Ole's study uh, did include that. That's Kerber's 2015 study you're talking about, where they only had one emergency physician and actually only three physicians uh, who were doing the HINTS exam in that study. My view is that HINTS should be used as an extra safety measure to ensure that we aren't missing a stroke in patients suffering with what looks like vestibular neuritis. So it's very important to stress that HINTS should not be used as a standalone test on all patients presenting with vertigo. Exactly. The HINTS exam must also be applied in the correct clinical situation. Now, a retrospective chart review of over 2,300 patients presenting with dizziness, the HINTS exam was misapplied, wait for this number here, 97% of the time. Yeah, yeah, that was a retrospective study. Also, um, the senior author was Ole again. And it just shows what happens when you try and apply a new, somewhat sophisticated bedside examination technique without training. I mean, if you just handed out ultrasound machines in the 1990s without any training, I think you'd get pretty similar bad results. So I'll say it again. Hints should only be used in patients with significant constant vertigo and spontaneous nystagmus who don't have the central features we already described. Well, as most people know, the HINTS exam consists of three bedside tests. There is the assessment of nystagmus, test of skew, and the head impulse test. And then there's HINTS plus exam. That's just the HINTS components, the three components you just described, with the addition of a bedside test of hearing, the finger rub test. This helps pick up the ICA strokes I mentioned earlier. An anterior inferior cerebellar artery stroke can present with the other HINTS exam findings identical to vestibular neuritis as the ICA stroke produces an infarct of the organs of balance and hearing, as well as part of the cerebellum. So a new hearing loss in a patient who presents with vertigo and findings consistent with the vestibular neuritis in that same ear should concern you for an ICA stroke. The bedside test of hearing can pick up these ICA strokes and can make the negative predictive value for hints even higher. But I still think the question remains, how much training is required to be able to use the hints exam and to make clinical decisions, and how should it be taught to emergency physicians? And if you decide to not use the hints exam, what are physicians going to use to evaluate these patients? If the patient presented to one of the rural emergency departments I work in right now, I would do some basic investigations that are available at my low-resource facility 
And then I would probably consult the neurologist at my tertiary care center. So to help answer that question of how much training is needed to use a HINTS exam, the paper we're going to discuss in some detail compares the uh, HINTS exam to the standing protocol. So we have to go back a few years and look at the standing study. It was an algorithm uh, devised by a Dr. Vanni in Italy, published in the Frontiers in Neurology in 2017. Well, I think most listeners are somewhat familiar with the HINTS exam. They've heard about it. We've done a podcast on it. But I don't think people are as, as familiar with this standing protocol. So can you take us through that algorithm? Sure. Uh, it's actually a pretty good al algorithm. And it, you're right, it hasn't really taken off very well. I'm not sure why. But it consisted of assessment of patients with acute onset of vertigo or imbalance and they were evaluated by six emergency physicians whose training was fairly significant. They had six hours of lectures, hands-on training, 10 proctored examinations. And then in the study, they looked at the type of nystagmus the patient had, the results of the head impulse test, and they did an assessment of the patient's ability to stand and walk, as well as the results of positional testing to look for BPBV. And it showed that the standing protocol had a 99% negative predictive value for stroke. So also a good protocol to allow you to send home the majority of patients who would have vestibular neuritis. For some reason, the test of skew, one of the components of the HINTS exam, was not part of this standing algorithm, which is why standing wasn't included in the systematic review and meta-analysis of HINTS by Ole et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine 2020. In fact, in the five studies that were in that meta-analysis of HINTS, there was only, again, one emergency physician included. In standing, they had six emergency physicians. Yeah, so, so standing with its six trained emergency physicians was a significant study as it showed that the head impulse test could be taught to emergency physicians and be used to rule out stroke. The head impulse test is the most important part of the HINTS exam. I sometimes call it the magic move. And that's because... As we've already said, the differential diagnosis in acute vestibular syndrome is mostly vestibular neuritis and some strokes. And every patient with vestibular neuritis in the first couple of days are going to have spontaneous nystagmus and also an abnormal head impulse test. But the head impulse test is also the most controversial aspect of the HINTS exam, with some emergency physicians arguing that it's too difficult to learn and interpret. But sometimes things that are useful take a fair bit of training to learn how to use properly, like bedside ultrasound. Other people have suggested the head impulse test could potentially harm a patient, which has never been shown to be the case. I've heard some say on Twitter that you can't rely on the flick of an eyeball. By that, they're talking about an abnormal catch of saccade seen during the head impulse test to send patients home. Although I'm pretty sure that they rely on the squiggle of an ECG or a shadow on an ultrasound to make clinical decisions. Well, another very interesting point about the standing study is that it what is that it is the first ever published study that specifically trained emergency physicians how to perform and interpret the supine roll test, which is how you diagnose the less common horizontal canal benign paroxysmal positional vertigo or BPPV as well as the Dix-Halpike test to diagnose the more common variety of BPPV, which is a posterior canal BPPV. 
Yeah, that's that's the one thing I loved about that study is that it did train emergency physicians to to use the proper diagnostic tool to diagnose both kinds of BPBV that are fairly commonly seen. And since the standing study included all patients with vertigo or imbalance and not just those with nystagmus, they found that half the patients that they saw had BPBV, of which 40% of those had horizontal canal BPBV. Horizontal canal BPBV is not well known to emergency physicians to this day and is probably one of the reasons that there's been a low uptake of the Epley maneuver for BPBV, even though it's been around for 30 years. And it's very easy to do. It's highly effective. But the Epley maneuver doesn't treat horizontal canal BPBV. So if 40% of your patients with BPBV don't respond to the Epley maneuver, you're probably going to stop doing it because you think it doesn't work very well. Does that sound familiar to any of your listeners? I have a video showing how to use a supine roll test and the Gafani maneuver to cure it. Yeah, that last paragraph really spoke to me because I have seen that in clinical practice, you know, that it doesn't work. Often, dozens and dozens of patients don't respond. And it's not because you're not doing the Epley maneuver correctly. It's because you don't have the right type of BPPV. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's a very interesting because most uh, vertigo specialists who the patients have to wait, you know, weeks or months to see a doctor, they say, oh, horizontal canal is rare. But because patients come to us in the first few hours of their illness, I would say 25 to 30% of the cases of BPBV I see have horizontal nystagmus, and that means they probably have horizontal BPBV. And uh, those people can often resolve themselves within a few days or a week or so. By the time they see the vertigo specialist a month or two later, they don't have anything. So that's why they say it's rare and they don't understand how we could see it so commonly. Well, with that background information on acute vestibular syndrome and the HINTS exam and the standing algorithm, it's about time we get to the study at hand and see what we can learn from it. So, Peter, what's the clinical question? The clinical question is, Can emergency physicians learn and properly use vertical protocols to assess patients with acute vestibular syndrome? And is one protocol better than others? And what's the reference? Gurlier, and the title was Differentiating Central from Peripheral Causes of Acute Vertigo in an Emergency Setting with the HINTS, Standing, and ABCD2 Tests, a Diagnostic Cohort Study. And it was published in Academic Emergency Medicine back in 2021. Let's run through the PICO. What was the population? The population was patients presenting with isolated vertigo and unsteadiness in the emergency department. Very importantly, nystagmus was not an inclusion criteria. Also, patients without symptoms at the time of examination were excluded. I emailed Dr. Gurlier, and she confirmed that excluding patients without symptoms at the time of the examination was an attempt to prevent patients with BPBV from being entered in the study as, as those patients don't generally complain of symptoms at rest. We'll discuss how the inclusion and exclusion criteria affected the results later. Also excluded were those with frank localizing neurologic signs. As we talked about, patients with central features not consistent with vestibular neuritis should be assumed to be having a stroke and be worked up for it. So what were the index tests used in this study? The index tests were the HINTS exam, the standing protocol, and then the ABCD2 score. Nine senior emergency physicians with six hours of training in both HINTS and the standing protocols. 
So that included the Dix-Hall-Pike test and supine roll test to look for both posterior canal and horizontal canal BPBV. They also looked at the ABCD2 score. As I mentioned, standing doesn't include the test of skew, but it does add testing of gait and testing for BPBV. And what did they compare it to? They compared it to MRI 48 to 72 hours after symptoms onset if the patient was hospitalized and if it wasn't already performed in the emergency department. CTA was used in patients with a contraindication to MRI. An examination by an otologist, a vertigo expert, was arranged to reassess the MRI results and to further identify peripheral etiologies like PPBV. Okay, let's go through the outcomes. What was their primary outcome of interest? It was the diagnostic accuracy, the sensitivity and specificity of the HINTS exam to diagnose a central cause of isolated vertigo. And how about their secondary outcomes? Comparing the accuracy of the HINTS exam, the standing algorithm, and the ABCD2 score. The perceptions of the trained emergency physicians on the use and the interpretation of HINTS and standing examinations were also looked at. All right, and we like to always point out what the study design was. So what type of study was this? Single Center Prospective Diagnostic Cohort Study. So the author's conclusions were, quote, in the hands of emergency physicians, hints and standing tests outperformed ABCD2 in identifying central causes of vertigo. For diagnosing peripheral disorders, the standing algorithm is more specific than the hints test. Hints and standing could be useful tools, saving both time and costs related to unnecessary neuroimaging use. End of quote. All right, let's go through a quality checklist for diagnostic studies. The first question, Peter, is the clinical problem, was it well-defined? Well, this is where it gets a little unsure. Hints was only designed to be used on patients with acute vestibular syndrome who have nystagmus. AVS, acute vestibular syndrome and Gurlier's functional definition for the study, does not include the presence of nystagmus. And secondly, despite trying to exclude BPBV patients by removing those patients without symptoms at the time of examination, the most common diagnosis made in this study was BPBV. Since HINTS has zero utility in diagnosing BPBV and standing includes the Dix-Hall-Pike test and supine roll test, which are the gold standard diagnostic tests for BPBV, This is a straw man comparison of HINTS versus standing protocols with regards to their ability to diagnose peripheral causes of vertigo. HINTS was not designed to diagnose BPBV, while standing was. The study population represents the target population that would normally be tested for this condition, i.e. no spectrum bias? Unsure again. As I said, despite trying to only include acute vestibular syndrome patients, the most common diagnosis was BPVV, which is not acute vestibular syndrome. And that's why the standing protocol appeared to be better than the hints in terms of specificity. The study population included or focused on those in the emergency department? Yep. The study patients, were they recruited consecutively? Uh, No, in fact, half of the patients were not enrolled because of unavailability of the trained emergency physicians. The diagnostic evaluation was significantly comprehensive and applied equally to all patients. Yeah. The diagnostic criteria were explicit, valid, and reproducible. Yes, again. The reference standard was appropriate. In other words, there was no imperfect gold standard bias. 
unsure because early MRI can miss 20% of strokes, as we said. They tried to mitigate this with uh, doing an MRI at 48 to 72 hours after symptoms onset for admitted patients if the, uh, if the MRI hadn't already been done in the emergency department. All undiagnosed patients underwent sufficiently long and comprehensive follow-up, so there was no double gold standard bias. Yes. The likelihood ratios of the test in question is presented or can be calculated from the information provided. Yes, it could. The precision of the measure of diagnostic performance is satisfactory? Again, yes. And the final question, what about conflicts of interest? Uh, There weren't any declared conflicts of interest. I don't think, I have any reason to think there would be. All right, let's go through the key results. Over 1% of ED patients presented with dizziness in this study. But as we mentioned earlier, half were excluded from the cohort because a trained emergency physician was not available, giving a total of 330 patients included in the study. The mean age of patients was 60 years, and close to two-thirds were female. Those ultimately diagnosed with central vertigo were 14 years older and more likely to be male compared to those diagnosed with peripheral vertigo. There are many other statistical differences between the two groups, and that is shown in Table 1. Peter, can you give us the key result, though? Well, in these nine trained emergency physicians, the HINTS exam and the standing algorithm outperformed ABCD2 in diagnosing central causes of vertigo. All right, let's dig into those outcomes. The primary outcome, that was the diagnostic accuracy. That's the sensitivity and specificity of the HINTS exam to diagnose a central cause of isolated vertigo. What were the actual results? Well, the sensitivity was 96.7 with a 95% confidence interval of 89 to 99.3. And the specificity was only 67.4 with, again, with CI of uh, 61 to 73. All right, and then they had a number of secondary outcomes, and Table 2 shows the diagnostic accuracy, including sensitivity and specificity, but also positive predictive value, negative predictive value, and likelihood ratios. Is there anything specific you want to pull out of that table? Well, I think the main thing is that the HINTS exam and the standing protocols both had impressive negative predictive value to rule out a stroke, 99.4 and 98.3 respectively. Out of the 300 patients evaluated, Hints only missed one stroke and Standing missed three strokes. And then there's figure two that shows the confidence of the trained emergency physicians using clinical tests and perceptions about the their impact in routine practice. Now, this was a five-point scale that was defined by a minimum agreement of one, strongly disagree, all the way up to a maximum agreement of five, or strongly agree. They found that the physicians were pretty comfortable in performing the HINTS exam, but still two out of the trained physicians didn't feel confident in their interpretation of the head and pulse test. All right, that's enough for the results section. Let's talk a little nerdy. I mean, I have a dizzy guru with me, so I really want to dig into some nerdiness here. So the first part was consecutive patients, and we mentioned this. These were not consecutive patients. Half of the patients were not included in the cohort because the emergency physician was not available. 
a lack of additional information is available on these patients who were excluded to know if they were like the included patients with dizziness. Second nerdy point is about specificity, the true negatives. The authors claimed that hints was less specific than standing, that they had more false positive results with hints. But this was mostly because most patients with BPBV were classified by hints as a central cause, and that's because they had a normal head impulse test. I know it's kind of, this is the hard part about hints is that a normal test is bad. It is if you have vertigo and nystagmus. But if you, like BPBV, have minimal or no vertigo and no nystagmus, you expect to see a normal head impulse test. In any case, the hints exam was never designed to be tested on patients with BPBV. Patients with BPBV have no reason to have an abnormal head impulse test because they don't have a vestibular nerve problem that would be seen by the abnormal head impulse test, which is what you see in all cases of vestibular neuritis. The third nerdy point was about the gold standard. 10% of the cohort did not receive an MRI, which is considered the gold standard test. This could have introduced some potential bias into the final diagnostic accuracy metrics. When the MRI is performed is also a concern. Evidence suggests that up to 20% of cases can be missed if the MRI is performed early within 24 hours. So it's unclear from figure one of their manuscript exactly when this reference standard test was done. The authors do mention in the discussion that they did not repeat an MRI in the 8% of patients who received their MRI within the first 24 hours of symptom onset. For more information on these biases and diagnostic studies and understanding the direction of these biases, please see the excellent article by et al. in Academic Emergency Medicine 2013. Okay. Now, back to my uh, BPBV hang-up here. The odd thing with this study is that even though they had 90 patients with BPBV, they claimed that 73% of them had a true overall HINTS peripheral result. I can't understand that because the only way to have an overall HINTS peripheral result is to have an abnormal head impulse test. And BPBV shouldn't have one. I contacted the author by email to ask her, how come this happened? She didn't actually have a good answer for it. If they had successfully excluded BPBV patients from their study, as was their intent, then I'm pretty sure the specificity of hints would have been much higher because they wouldn't have any more false positive with hints from the many BPV patients that they entered. So why did they have so many BPBV patients in this study when they didn't want them anyway? First, BPBV is the most common cause of vertigo, and many patients with BPBV endorse a baseline dizziness even when they're still. If you take a careful history, you can usually figure out who are having those short episodes of dizziness when they turn over in bed and get out of bed and lie down in bed and then have a minor baseline dizziness. That's BPBV versus the people who have an intense, very persistent dizziness that's worse with head movements. Those people could be have vestibular neuritis or a stroke. But then again, when you talk to the BPBV patients and say, are you dizzy right now? They'll say, yeah, kind of. And that's how they those probably got those patients in the study. And secondly, and most importantly, they didn't require the patients to have spontaneous nystagmus as an inclusion criteria. Again, patients with BPBV almost never have spontaneous nystagmus. So if they used the strict definition of acute vestibular syndrome as having significant constant dizziness and spontaneous nystagmus, 
they would have eliminated almost all the patients with BPBV. So the fifth and final nerdy point was about confidence intervals. The sensitivity for the HINTS exam in detecting all causes of central vertigo was high. It was almost 97%. However, the lower end of the 95% confidence interval dipped below 90%, down to 89%, suggesting over 10% of central causes of vertigo could potentially be missed. Now, the point estimate for the negative predictive value for the HINTS exam was better at 99.4% for diagnosing a stroke. The lower end of its 95% confidence interval for this metric was 96.6%, suggesting just over 3% of strokes could potentially be missed. Whether that's an acceptable miss rate would depend on your practice environment. Now, you can go to the negative likelihood ratios for diagnosing a stroke with the HINTS exam, which is independent of prevalence of disease, and it was 0.03. This is less than the 0.1 that has been used to rule out a diagnosis. However, that 95% confidence interval did go up to 0.2. Again, it depends on where you practice if this is considered a reasonable miss rate. So those are the five nerdy questions I wanted to go through. But again, I have you a dizzy guru, somebody who's passionate about vertigo. So I wanted to ask you a few more questions. Is that okay? I'm all ears. Ask away. All right. So is it possible, again, to train emergency physicians to do the HINTS exam? Well, guess what? I say yes. If you include the six physicians trained in the original standing study and the nine trained in this study by Gurlier, that's 15 emergency physicians able to use the head and pulse test as part of a diagnostic algorithm to reliably rule out stroke in patients with acute dizziness. And I've trained many myself. Yesterday, I had a fourth year medical student with me and I taught him how to do the HINTS exam. After only a couple of minutes, his technique in performing the head impulse test, which is the trickiest part, was much better than when he started. So I don't think there's any question anymore if it's possible, but the question is how to best train these physicians and what percentage of emergency physicians who are trained will be able to use this effectively in clinical practice. Will there be 100% uptake? Well, of course not. There's not 100% uptake in any clinical practice advance, no matter how easy or effective it might be. But what's the alternative? Admit them all for three days and MRI them all? That approach can't be used in every clinical scenario where dizzy patients present themselves. But the HINTS exam by trained physicians could. So I like how you snuck in that you could teach a fourth-year medical student. So what you're saying is, it is possible to train me how to do this. Is that what you're saying, Peter? I'd have to see the evidence. (laughs) I'm willing to participate in in an N of one study of whether it's possible to teach you the HINTS exam. I think you could. I would welcome the opportunity to have someone like you teach me one-on-one. I think that would be great. All right, the second question I had for you is, should you do the HINTS exam first? Well, if your listeners haven't got it yet, I'll say it again. HINTS should only be performed on a dizzy patient with nystagmus after carefully screening them for the central features as we described. If you use hints this way, I think it will save time and precious MRI resources, as Gurlier suggests. 
but we're facing a huge problem with indication creep with respect to people suggesting doing hints on those without nystagmus. For instance, Jonathan Edlow, who's a giant in vertigo education of emergency physicians, says you can do the head and pulse test on patients without nystagmus, but you can't rely on the results. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And it gets worse. I, I looked at the brand new Rosen's Emergency Medicine textbook chapter on vertigo, and it has in it figure 15.3, an algorithm that says if you have persistent symptoms, you should be subjected to the components of the HINTS exam as well as screen for central features. And if the head and pulse test is normal, you need an MRI and neurology consult. And as we just went through, Gurley's study showed not including nystagmus as an indication for HINTS makes you perform hints on many patients with BPPV and many false positive results. And the value of hints is degraded to the point where it's no longer a useful test. So please, no nystagmus, no hints for you. <laughs> I think you've got that message across. All right. When can you start using hints exam in clinical practice? Again, this is just my personal viewpoint because it, it you know hasn't really been studied extensively, but I think this is the way you should do it. You should check the following boxes. You should know the indication for hints, which means constant vertigo and nystagmus and have to screen negative for the central features. You have to be able to describe the, the features of the central and peripheral results of the three components of the hints exam without referring to notes. I think you have to have a vertigo interested clinician, a vertigo champion, if you will, observe you performing the hints exam and they approve your technique. And lastly, and this is a little bit trickier, but I think it's doable. I think you should be able to record an abnormal head impulse test on your phone's camera and have it verified as abnormal head impulse test by a vertigo champion. I think then you could start using it to make clinical decisions. If you do the HINTS exam on a patient and you're not sure whether or not there's an abnormal head impulse test or a skew, be cautious and call it a central result. And then with experience, you'll become more confident and you'll end up sending home a lot of vestibular neuritis patients safely and quickly without imaging. And for all those patients with little or no dizziness at rest and no nystagmus, you should perform the Dix-Hallpike and the supine roll test to pick up the BPPV patients, both posterior and horizontal canal. Well, you mentioned one thing in your list there that I think was really important, and that was about a local champion. Yeah, I... Having local ultrasound champions, I think, was a huge factor in how it spread across the world, bedside ultrasound, because you had people who were passionate and were capable, and it just spread like wildfire. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a, lot of, not a lot of vertigo champions in emergency medicine, but I think there can be. You know, Ken, I'm currently winding down my clinical practice after 37 years of working in the trenches and I'm looking forward to having time to reach out and give in-person hands-on, even to you, Ken. Where do you, where do you work again now? <laughs> is there a Hilton there? Is there, is there a... We'll always, we'll always have a spare bedroom ready for you. Anyway, I'm, I'd like to, to, to give hands-on vertigo workshops locally and abroad. I also can critique the technique of your head impulse test virtually, but in-person is better. So if you want me to visit your hospital and teach... Anyone out there listening, want to teach your residents or faculty, send me an email, peterjohns84 at gmail.com, and let's nurture more people to become vertigo champions so we can stop the vertigo vicious cycle of vexation and help our patients. Well, thank you for that offer. 
Um, what can we do about the patient who is constantly dizzy, but doesn't have nystagmus? That's a good question. I get asked it a lot. And I think the answer is found in a study by Mochner in the Journal of Neurology 2020. He found that patients who were dizzy in the emergency department and had an objective finding of difficulty with either just standing or walking, but they didn't have nystagmus, they actually had a high risk of stroke. He coined this term the acute imbalance syndrome. And when he performed delayed MRIs on all of them, a third of them had acute lesions on their MRI. And if their ABCD2 score was four or more, half of them had MRI abnormalities. So yes, worry about patients with acute objective change in balance, dizzy, but no nystagmus. BPBV patients rarely, if ever, have an objective change in their balance or walking once their brief episode of dizziness settles down. Well, let's bring this back to the SGEM format and comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. And we generally agree with the author's conclusions. Peter, can you give an SGEM bottom line? I think this study shows that emergency physicians can use the HINTS exam to rule out stroke on patients with constant vertigo and nystagmus, who screen negative for central features of vertigo and have an overall HINTS peripheral result. And can you resolve the case you presented? Let's just say that there happened to be a person there who was pretty knowledgeable and comfortable with the HINTS exam. So it was performed and that patient's nystagmus didn't change direction with gaze. It always was beating to the, towards the left. There was no vertical skew deviation seen with the alternate covered test. And there was an abnormal catch saccad scene during the head impulse test when her head was turned rapidly to the right. So that is what you need to say that this is an overall hints peripheral result and she's likely suffering from vestibular neuritis affecting the right ear. She also had no new hearing loss when she was tested with a finger rub test because as we said earlier, if there was, that'd be concerning for an ICA stroke. As it was normal, she was discharged home and when seen in a follow-up clinic at the local, we have a local rapid access dizzy clinic run by a vertigo interested ENT surgeon and a neurologist, her symptoms had completely resolved. Again, her findings can be found in my video. So how do you think we should take this publication from 2021 and apply it clinically? Well, given that MRI can miss 20% of early dizzy strokes and the lack of 24-hour MRI availability throughout the world, so more education about the HINTS exam is warranted to save time and money in these patients. Emergency physicians can be taught how to use the HINTS exam to safely discharge patients with constant vertigo and nystagmus and no central features. So Peter, what are you going to say at the patient's bedside? I tell these patients with constant vertigo and nystagmus with no central features and an overall peripheral HINTS exam that their dizziness is caused by a problem with the nerve that supplies information about balance from the ear to their brain, and that's very unlikely to be a serious cause such as a stroke. They're safe to recuperate at home using anti-nausea medications for two or three days only. Also been shown that vestibular physiotherapy can be helpful to allow these patients to recover. So you can offer to make a referral for your patient. And I'm just going to throw in one final question here that we don't usually have. What are you going to tell emergency physicians when they're faced with a dizzy patient? I just want to bring this back to your theme song. 
Well, if you've run away from the Hints exam, we can go through it together and we can understand who we're supposed to do it on, how to do it, how to interpret it, and how it can be useful for all these patients who are presenting with this common problem. And we're so scared of missing a stroke and we can be very confident that we're not. So emergency physicians, you don't have to run away. All right, it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. And last week's winner was Caleb Herrick. He knew naloxone is included in Suboxone to deter intravenous use. Peter, you have a really hard question for us. Now, that's okay because I have a couple of listeners that get every Keener Contest question right. So this is for them. This is really going to be a challenge. I want to see if they can get this question. And the question is, who first described the nystagmusine in posterior canal BPVV and in what year? Oh, a two-parter. So if you know the name of the person who first described nystagmus in the posterior canal, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, and you also have to have the year, then I will send you a cool skeptical prize. But it's a challenge this week. It is a challenge. Well, thank you, Peter. I am so happy that I finally got you on the SGEM to talk about this. Well, it's been a real pleasure, and uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to the uh, in-person teaching of the HINTS exam. I, I think that I can rotate that melon of yours uh, <laughs> in just the right way to figure out what's wrong with you. Shake it up, baby. Shake it up. Well, there's one last thing to do, and that is for you to read the SGEM tagline. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Bye.